When I was a kid, living to a hundred years old sounded a little bit like science fiction. Sure, it was in the realm of possibility, but it felt out of reach. And the fact that it was something so rare that Canadian centenarians would get a letter from the British monarch congratulating you if you made it, it all sounded a little bit ridiculous. But even then, I had a sense it was possible. A generation or two earlier, the idea wouldn't have been science fiction. It would have been pure fantasy. But experts say most of today's five-year-olds living in wealthier countries will likely live to see the big 100. The king better get his pen hand ready. By 2050, the number of people over 65 worldwide is expected to reach 2 billion. And we're seeing those trends play out here in Canada, too. By 2046, it's expected that seniors will outnumber children by 2 to 1. This sounds like great news, but the fact is, a lot of us would rather not talk about aging at all. We might be okay with visiting grandma and grandpa in their retirement homes, but if we're being honest, we dread the day that we'll be in their position. And that's particularly true since our society doesn't do a great job of celebrating our elders, royal letters aside. The insinuation in a lot of our go-go-go culture is that it's a burden rather than a privilege or an achievement to grow old. So as our lives begin to get longer, we'll need to push that stigma aside so we can think about our society differently and with clear eyes. What does the workplace and retirement look like when 80 is the new 60? Will our healthcare system hold up to the strain of more acute issues? And then, of course, there's the matter of cities. How will we rethink the places that are supposed to foresee and provide for your needs when they become increasingly populated by the elderly? Even if you think you're going to be spry and immortal, this issue is coming for you too. And in fact, it's probably already affecting you no matter how old you are. Making cities more accessible for our most vulnerable, after all, means that they're more accessible to all of us. Uh, loneliness, a problem often reported by urban seniors, is something we can all understand. I mean, remember when you couldn't leave your house for a year? And even the housing crisis is connected. Seniors accounted for about a quarter of all homeowners in Canada in 2016. And after a pandemic that disproportionately affected the elderly, why wouldn't older people prefer to live in their homes as long as possible? So how are cities getting themselves prepared for the silver tsunami of aging baby boomers, as well as our longer lives? What do we need to think about to make urban life comfortable for some of our most vulnerable populations, which, if you're lucky, may one day include you? And how does creating age-friendly cities benefit all citizens? Welcome back to City Space. I'm your host, Adrian Lee. After the break, we'll speak with an elder care consultant about the issues that are most concerning to today's urban seniors. This podcast is brought to you by Novo Nordisk. For a hundred years, Novo Nordisk has been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca. Joy Laverty is a senior industry consultant as well as an advisor in aging and elder care-related issues. She's also the author of Who Will Take Care of Me When I'm Old and The Complete Elder Care Planner. Here's our conversation. I really appreciate you coming in to chat with us today, Joy. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Adrian. 
So we know that most societies worldwide are getting older and that as a result, the needs of our uh, elders are in many ways getting more complex, too. For you, what are the biggest concerns that you're hearing from the seniors you speak with? That they're, that they're isolated, that they're invisible, and they don't really know how to create connection as well. Plus, sometimes chronic conditions make it impossible to get out as much as they would like to. Also interacting with the younger people, connecting is one thing, like running into each other on a corner is one thing, but actually creating situations where there are conversations. It's the experience of connecting that matters. And so how can cities uh, provide those kinds of opportunities to connect? Well, one of the things I like city planners to think about is helping people get used to the idea of people who are not like them. So what are some of the ways that the old and the young and the rich and the poor and the can get together under circumstances that are highly social? Like Chicago, for instance, where I live. We have in the summer, I think every single weekend, we have a free festival. We have free dancing classes. All of these Activities are outdoors where you might be walking by and then find yourself all of a sudden in the middle of a activity that you're meeting people that you never thought you'd meet. I wonder what it is that you think that seniors can expect as far as care in one's older years. You know, cities uh, definitely support folks across all ages. And so what are the things that cities and communities can provide in terms of support? Um, the biggest thing that I would say would be to help people plan to age in place. They don't realize that aging in place is not a statement. You know, you, we hear people all the time say, I'm going to live in my house forever. And yet, when you walk out the front door, where are the resources and how are we going to be able to help people to afford to age in place? Cities could do the residents a world of good by helping them plan to age in place, uh, making resources more readily available, including adding uh, safety measures within their housing environment. And what are the challenges that are involved in this? I mean, aging in place sounds like a great idea uh, for most, but uh, you know, are there not impacts uh, uh, beyond even the folks who are aging in place? Sure. So, so one thing we don't like to think about is if we're aging in place now, and we are coupled, let's say we have relationships that are within the same household, eventually, if we live long enough, we will eventually age in place as a solo ager. So these are people who are never married, separated, divorced, widowed. So the, the considerations of aging in place alone is what a lot of people don't consider, and they should. How do you see creating age-friendly cities, benefiting not just seniors, but all people who live in a city? Oh, the, the, there's just like a one pat answer, and I keep driving it home, intergenerations. We've got to keep the young and the old together, and, and this would be how we can best serve our aging citizens. So we have people who are able-bodied, who can help the elders. And then as those people grow old, they have a pool of people behind them doing the same for them. And right now we have a we have a philosophy, at least in the American culture, of independence and autonomy. And I really see that we need a mind shift, that aging friendly 
aging responsibly and aging together has to be the new mindset. Have you seen that shift about how societies approach elderly care happening over the course of the time that you've been working on this? Well, I have this thing about who is society? <laughs> and I like to narrow it down as, oh, I think it's me. And so what I what I tend to do is tell people not to sit around and wait for society or, or anyone else to begin to help improve their quality of life. So yes, I have seen more people individually take it upon themselves to reach out to other generations and begin initiatives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you've mentioned that you've seen a shift in how we support, uh, you know, elders in our community. Uh, Do you think that on the sort of elders side of things, on the senior side of things, that expectations have changed too? You know, are seniors expecting more uh, as they, uh, you know, sort of feel like they need in some ways more support? I I don't think that the idea about solo aging even existed until the turn of the century, or at least it wasn't in most people's mindset. And people aging alone was not a big number at the time. But then all of a sudden, more boomers and more millennials began to express themselves as solo agers or living alone. And now the numbers are astronomical. And because there has been an actual number shift, there's been more conversations about it. So to answer your question, I think what's happening is, is there's simply more awareness that solo ragers must plan differently than people who have a network of support with family. Eventually, if we live long enough, we will all be solo ragers, but there's a good chance that someone we know will be around. That's not true for solo ragers who are alone right now and wondering who is going to take care of them when they are old. So what else is at the forefront of your mind when a city is planning for an aging population? If I had to prioritize what they need to consider. It would be the consideration of inclusion in the workplace. To be able to afford a long life means they need to be able to work. As a city, are you offering them ample opportunities to make money? This by far is what I hear over and over again is I can't work, no one will hire me. So there's two wonderful things that happen when a when a city has age-friendly workplaces where someone can move to a city that they know they can be employed and be paid for what they do. So it gives them not only a sense of purpose, but it also helps them finance, pay their bills. Well, thanks, Joy, for joining us. You're very welcome. After the break, we'll look at a city that has improved life by leaps and bounds for its senior citizens. Since the beginning of our company, Novo Nordisk, a hundred years ago, we have been working to help people with chronic diseases live full and healthy lives. And while people today are living longer than ever before, rising rates of obesity and diabetes threaten the health and prosperity of future generations. Together with our partners, we are going beyond medicine to strengthen disease prevention and early intervention, driving change for the health of generations to come with the ultimate goal of a world free from the burden of chronic disease. To learn more, visit novonordisk.ca.
Japan has one of the oldest populations in the world. 29% of its citizens are older than 65, and 15%, or about 20 million people, are older than 75. But what these stats don't really convey is how this growing demographic has a whole new impact on Japanese cities. A city's infrastructure, social policies, the labor market, that all gets really affected when a country starts to get dominated by the elderly. The city of Toyama, a coastal city northwest of Tokyo, is a prime example of a city that has really thought about what an aging population will mean. Toyama expects one-third of its total residents to be older than 65 by 2025. So it's been working to figure out how to shift urban systems and landscapes so that those people might live a vibrant, connected life. In 2002, Toyama launched what it called a compact city strategy. They focused on several infrastructure and public policy changes to make the city more age-friendly. New light rail lines were built with subsidized fares for seniors to make it easier to get around town. Elderly folks, accompanied by their grandkids, could get in free to museums, art galleries, and zoos in an attempt to combat isolation and loneliness. Grocery stores began to offer more pre-cooked meals, with a special focus on making them easier to chew. One of the city's malls began training its staff to help customers dealing with dementia. The municipal government is supporting the cost of housing that's built within 500 meters of a train station to offer seniors more housing options closer to public transit. And a city-sponsored program offers guided senior walks to promote mobility. The more people walk, the less they spend on health, says Masashi Mori, the town's former mayor. You've got to get older folks active and interacting with other people. And it's really worked. Since the strategy rollout, Toyama has seen a decrease in the number of senior citizens using both its healthcare insurance program and its long-term care insurance system. Between 2005 and 2017, the number of residents living in the city center grew from 28% to 38%, and Toyama expects that number to be 42% by next year. The city also has the highest level of participation in senior citizens clubs in the country, 42.5% compared to the national average of 14%. It took more than 20 years to get things rolling, but it's turned into an age-friendly model city. So how can more cities adopt an age-friendly model like Toyama? Chiago Herrick de Sa leads the Department of Age-Friendly Environments for the World Health Organization. At the WHO, Chiago and his colleagues are trying to help more cities reach the age-friendly standards set by Toyama by overseeing something called the Global Network for Age-Friendly Cities and Communities. Here's our conversation. So Chiago, just to start, tell me about the WHO's Global Network for Age-Friendly Cities. What was it designed to do and what has it done since it was founded? Back in 2007, WHO published a seminal document called Age-Friendly Cities, a Guide, which was basically providing a framework and summarizing what we heard from older people from over 30 cities from around the world on what an age-friendly city or community and age-friendly environment would mean to them. A couple of years later, these cities actually came back to us and said that it would be nice if they had a platform through which they could cooperate, exchange, get support from one another. So in response to that, back in 2010, WHO established the global network for age-friendly cities and communities, starting with 
with those cities that have actually contributed to develop the Age-Friendly Cities Guide. Uh, with the vision, the common vision of making their communities a great place to grow older in, and uh, with the mission to stimulate and enable citizen communities around the world to become more age-friendly by inspiring change, so showing what can be done, how it can be done, uh, connecting them, and uh, supporting them to find the the evidence-based uh, solutions to actually deliver on mm. on that vision. And so based on your work, what are the areas where seniors need the most support from their cities? So these are some of the domains that have been identified by older people as critical for us to create age-friendly environments. And they are transportation, housing, social participation, respect and social inclusion, civic participation and employment, communication and information, community support and health and social services, and outdoor spaces and buildings. Practically speaking, how does that how does that drill down to the development of an age-friendly city or community? You have to have mechanisms in place and a strategy in place to engage and understand older people, their families, their needs, their aspirations, their priorities, then you have to have mechanisms, strategies in place to jointly develop uh, an action plan and to actually implement those interventions that will ultimately deliver on those priorities. And then you have to assess with a very uh, a very concrete, sincere uh, way of, of doing it, because you have to check not only what worked well, but also what didn't. Now, where, where were the gaps, what to do next, what to do more, now, whether we need more resources for this and that. And in doing so, then you create what we call an age-friendly cycle of engaging, planning, acting, measuring, just so that the measurements could inform then the development of the next cycle. You know, I'm, I'm hearing you list the domains, and a lot of those things are just good city-building principles. Uh, and to your point about the way that we build age-friendly cities being good for people of all ages, are, are there specific ways where building better age-friendly cities produces surprising benefits for other people? There are several concrete examples. For instance, if you develop a public transport system that is inclusive to all the people, that is built under the principles of universal access, most likely you're building a public transport system uh, that is also good for people living with disabilities. Now, whether temporary or, or permanent, you're also building transport systems that are that are better and more inclusive to people living with, with uh, dementia and other mental health conditions. You're building a transport system that is good for, for mothers with, with kids. You're building a transport system that works for many people, particularly those that are not traditionally considered in designing such a systems. And the same could be said for outdoor spaces, right? You create not only a green space area, but also opportunities for people to engage, to exchange, you know, to have fun together. In doing so, you will most likely address uh, unintended social isolation and loneliness, which is a common challenge among older people, but you will also create opportunities for children to play. Uh, you will foster intergenerational solidarity 
which is a key element for us to foster healthy healthy communities as well. So there are many different examples through which developing age-friendly citizen communities benefits both older people, but also other other groups uh, in the population. Can you give us a few examples of specific initiatives or policies that cities around the world have taken based on this particular plan? There are some cities, communities that do regular street audits. So basically they get older people, their families, uh, and urban planners, the ones like you know, drafting, planning, designing our city to go and walk together. And then they will do a street audit. They will say, look, this is not working well. I would love to go uh, to work by walk, but I get tired. So please add a bench here halfway through or public toilets or say, look, I, I, I love this area, but perhaps we need a bit more shade here. We need a, uh, some trees. Ah, some other concrete examples. Uh, uh, you have, uh, for example, age-friendly homes programs, which is quite interesting because it's a type of program where you try and have a 360 look at someone's house. So you're not just interested in the infrastructural changes that you need to do, but you also look at, for instance, right-sizing. Oftentimes the house is just too small or too large to the needs of other people. Imagine that uh, you you raised a family there, but then your kids left and you know, you you left with this big house that is hard to handle. It's perhaps bigger than what you need. So you have those programs actually helping older people to navigate through all the services provided at the local or national level to support them, right-sizing, improving, improving the energy efficiency of their houses and in doing so addressing climate change, uh, making sure that you get all the documentation, housing tenure sorted, uh, making sure that health and social care gets to you instead of you having to go to uh, to the health and, and social care. Also make sure that health and social care goes to the house. So there are many interesting interventions, policies, initiatives that you can put in place. And, uh, and we have been seeing how innovative those citizen communities are in developing them. So those are a lot of great examples, but I wonder if you could point to specific places where you can say, you know, this is a real shining example of an age-friendly city. Melville is a, is a smaller city uh, in Western Australia. For example, age-friendly employment, programs ensuring that uh, workspaces, uh, employment opportunities were, were responsive and inclusive to other people's needs and aspirations. In many places, a third of the workforce is is made of older people, and yet they are invisible workers. Right? They are workers that are not taken into consideration when shaping or drafting how uh, employment mechanisms should look like, how uh, workspaces should look like. So there are many ideas. There are many interesting, innovative examples around intergenerational solidarity. You have several examples around how to foster intergenerational solidarity through agriculture, urban agriculture, through collective cooking. You have some very interesting initiatives around housing schemes where you bring together students in need of a place to live and older people in need of of company and, and support. So there are so many interesting initiatives. I, I really invite you to have a look at what the whole uh, uh, global network is doing around that. 
the next episode of City Space, we're focusing on our most cute and cuddly neighbors, and that's animals. We often think of cities as these concrete moonscapes devoid of wildlife, but lots of animals not only survive in urban areas, but have learned to thrive by adapting to these environments. How can we coexist better with animals, especially since we're in their house? City Space is produced by Julia Delorentis Johnston and Kyle Fulton. Our theme song is by Andrew Austin. Our executive producer is Kieran Rana. Thanks to Joy and Chiago for joining us today. If you like what you heard, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your favorite city dweller about City Space, too. I'm Adrian Lee. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. <laughs>